Guys, we're going to continue our uh, series through the book of Philippians. We're going to finish chapter 2 today. So if you have your Bibles, grab them. We'll be in Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 19. Paul writes from a Roman prison, shackled to a Roman centurion. And as he writes this letter to this church he planted so many years ago, the Holy Spirit inspires him to write the very words of God, and he pens these words. God says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ, but you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord, shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious, to receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This is the word of the Lord. When you read sections like this, it is easy to skip over them. You know, like when you start your Bible reading plan and you finally get to Leviticus and you're like, ugh. Or when you're reading through the New Testament and you get to those introductions and, you, and there are kind of these, what we feel like throwaway sections. And so it's easy to skip over ones like this. But we believe that this book is inspired by God, holy, and and, uh, every word is meant for our edification. And so, even when we come to passages that we're not quite sure what they mean, passages that are really just uh, the travel discussions of Paul and these two other guys, we know that God wants to speak to us through them. This morning, I think that he wants to give us insight into what it means to be a part of the family of God by watching and looking at the discussions of these three men. So let me ask you this question. What should a family look like? Or what traits should a family have? What should set a family apart? Oftentimes, the only examples that we have really to model our families after are are the families we grew up in or the families that we see on TV. We watch sitcoms. It's funny because uh, the families we watch on TV are always full of dysfunction because dysfunction is funny. And, and you know, in sitcoms, the dad, always wrong. Always wrong. Always a goofball. Uh, they never seem to work, uh, so I don't know how they have any money. They always hang out with their friends at the same restaurant every night. Seems impractical. And there's always that one goofy friend that's always around. We do not model our lives after the tropes of sitcoms, but what should we model them after? And not specifically even this morning, our immediate families, but our church family. Because we believe that the blood of Jesus has taken everyone in this room who has trusted in Christ and has made them a new family, a family that is thicker than blood. And so if we are a family, if we are indeed brothers and sisters, then what should this family look like? 
What should our church family be modeled after? What traits should it have? What should it look like? What sets us apart? God in this section gives us a short little sitcom, if you will, to show us how we should interact with one another, how we should feel and care for one another, what it looks like when you bring a bunch of strangers into the same room and declare them family. And so as we watch these interactions between Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus, I hope we will see what the family of God should be like, what we as Fellowship Baptist Church should be and look like. There are four marks in the text of the family of God. First, let's look at verse 19. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. Now remember, Paul's in prison. He is in prison, awaiting trial, shackled to a guard 24 hours a day. He is not living the good life at the moment. People outside of the jail are trying to take advantage of Paul, of Paul's absence. They're running his name down. They want to become him. And so they are are, are hurting him, tearing him down. And yet, despite all of this, Paul's best friend, his son in the faith, Timothy, is there with him, comforting him, caring for him, bringing him food. And yet, Paul is ready and willing to send Timothy to the Philippians, some hundreds of miles away, so that Paul could hear about what the Lord was doing in them and in their city and how the gospel was advancing. He was willing to give up his friend so that he could be cheered by, so that he could celebrate the news of how God was working in them. Paul's in rough shape. He's not enjoying life. He's not having this lavish moment. Yet he wants to celebrate what God is doing in other people. The first mark of the family of God is that we celebrate the Lord's work everywhere we see it. Now, I think this is important because so often, myself the foremost, we can be incredibly self-absorbed. We can be concerned really about the things that, uh, that affect us, the expectations that do or don't get met in our life, the things that are inconvenient for us. We can be pretty worried just about us. And when the Lord is at work in someone else's life, when the Lord is doing something over there and we're disconnected from it, how do we respond? How do we respond? Often we hear about those things and Oh, yeah, that's great. The Lord did, oh, that's cool. That's great, yeah, awesome, exciting. But what should we do? When we hear the Lord's working over there, I'm so excited, I'm so thrilled. It thrills our hearts. Man, I'll be praying for that. I hope the Lord continues to bless that. See, when we're on mission, when we are longing to see God at work, it should thrill us. We should celebrate. It should warm our hearts when we see God using other people to thrill our soul. We should not be marked by jealousy that says, well, why, don't, why don't I ever get recognition? Why don't I ever, why does anybody ever point out what I'm doing? Why don't anybody celebrate what I'm doing? Why doesn't God use me like that? That's not how we respond. See, if you can't celebrate the Lord to work in someone else in which you took no part, you won't be able to find joy in the Lord using you unless you get the credit. See, sometimes we might feel left out of something. Sometimes we, uh, we might feel um, uninvited or we didn't get to be a part of something. Like I can't tell you how many times I've done this or seen this happen where uh, maybe I, you sh- someone shares with someone else, uh, hey, man, we're so excited that God is doing this awesome thing in, in this area over here. 
And you tell that person and they're like, oh, cool. And later you find out that they got their feelings hurt or they were upset because they were never invited to be a part of that thing. But see, the gospel, what it should do, it should transform us in such a way that we're less concerned about us and what we get to do or don't get to do and more concerned about what the Lord is doing and celebrate that. One of the reasons that every time we have a baptism, I, I, I remind us again to stand and to scream and to cheer and to applaud and to make a big deal of it. It's because we can never grow complacent to what the Lord is doing. And baptism should be the easiest thing that we get excited about. We should never get to a place where we go, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, we baptize people. That's something we do here, yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah, some kid got baptized last week. Yeah, sure. That should never be a response. It should be like, yes, that's awesome. We need to have a culture that celebrates everything and everywhere the Lord is working. Not in a forced way, but in a natural way that, uh, uh, that we grow in this idea that when we see God work over there, it just warms us. It's exciting. We celebrate it. When our youth stay after hours to do Bible study, when our kids are growing and learning about the things of God, when, uh, when our small groups grow and have to expand, when mission teams go out, when an individual takes an opportunity to share the gospel, we should celebrate. And not just our church, but when the church plant over here across the street in the old Presbyterian church, the YMC over here now, when, when we hear good reports from them, when we hear good news of what the Lord is doing with their church, we should be excited. We should be thrilled. We say, yes, we are not in competition with them. They are our brothers. And if another church plant were to come and, and plant a church somewhere near here, we shouldn't say, oh, this is, this is our territory. These are our people. We should rather say, no, if you look at a satellite, there are a trillion church or uh, houses around here. We need more churches to come in here and help us reach these people with the gospel. We should celebrate God's work wherever we see it. 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says something that I've always found interesting. He says, listen, he says basically, I'm following Jesus so you imitate me. I'm following Jesus so you imitate me as I follow him. Because if you imitate me, you'll be following him. And in the same way here, as we see Paul cheered by the news of the Philippians, so should we celebrate wherever we hear the news that the Lord is at work. I'll give you a great example of someone in our church who does this incredibly well, exemplifies this. Patty Hale. Amen. Amen. Patty Hale, I saw her last night and we were at movie night, and she's just excited. Yes, what are we doing? How are we going? What's going on? Whatever you tell her about what the Lord's doing, she's just excited. She may have nothing to do with it, but she's just, yeah, that's awesome. She was just telling me this morning about watching that prayer thing in D.C., and she's like, man, I was just so moved. That was so great. She is excited wherever she sees the, Lord do, the Lord's work. And so what do I do? I want to follow her. Help me be more like Patty, as Patty is more like Jesus. Amen? So the first mark of the family of God is we celebrate the, what the Lord is doing wherever we see it, whether we're involved in it or not. And the second thing is this, that we have a genuine concern for others. You see, in, the, in verse 20, Paul is still talking about sending Timothy to the Philippians. And here is what Paul says about Timothy. He says in verse 20, I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Think about that phrase, genuinely concerned, genuine. Why does Paul use the word genuinely? Probably because over the years, Paul had seen so many people give lip service to concern for him. Oh, yeah, Paul, whenever you leave, we'll send you money. 
Oh, yeah, Paul, we'll be praying. Oh, yeah, Paul, we'll be there for you. And they, in the end, weren't. They never backed it up. You have probably experienced this in your life where people have made commitments to you, said they had your back, said they'd be there, but when it counted, they never followed through. See, so often we tell people we're concerned or caring for them, and it's only out of politeness that we say those things. But when push comes to shove, they're not there. But how refreshing is it? How encouraging and heartwarming is it when someone goes above and beyond out of their way to serve you and genuinely care for you? Like when someone shows up to your house with a meal and says, hey, we know that you've had a hard week or a hard month. You've been going through these things and we just wanted to give you a break tonight. We cooked dinner for you. Here it is. Doesn't that make you feel seen and heard and loved and cared for? When someone comes and says, hey, listen, we want you to pick a Saturday to go out on a date and we're gonna come watch your kids. Take it, let me know. And like they're on you. They're not just like six months from now, like they're on you. No, like this week, next week, which one's better? And, and, they, and they force themselves to come watch your kids so you can go, like, who does that? Does that not make you feel seen and cared for and heard? Make you feel valued? It's genuine care. Genuine has these kind of two aspects to it. One, genuine means I truly feel it, like in my gut. Like I feel emotional toward your plight, concern on an emotional level to you, but also it leads to action. Genuine concern manifests itself in doing something for someone else. And when someone shows genuine concern for you, when they go out of their way, it makes you feel cared for in a way we seldom feel today. As the family of God, we must be those who show genuine care for people. Our concern should not be mere politeness or mere obligation. It should be genuine. We see this on display in verse 26 and 28 where he says, For he has been longing for you all. Talking about Epaphroditus. He's been longing for you all and has been distressed because uh, you heard he was ill. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, that I might be less anxious. Epaphroditus was sent by the Philippian church to Rome for the sole purpose of caring for Paul in prison. Epaphroditus gets really, really sick, and he's like at the point of death. He's about to die. And when Epaphroditus heard that his home church had learned that he was sick, it distressed him that they were worried about him. Have you ever met anyone? Have you ever gone to the hospital? This happens to me all the time. I'll go to the hospital. I'll visit somebody who's just had like open heart surgery, chest opened up, they got stitches, you know, they got tubes hooked up to them. And I'm like, how are you doing? How are you holding up? Oh, I'm fine. How, how are you? How's your family? How are the kids? How's Charles things at church? We're fine. How are you? Oh, I'm fine. Don't worry about it. I'll be home in a couple of days. Ain't no big deal. no big deal. How are the kids? My kids are fine. How are you? I've never, listen, the the person that I think exemplifies this the most is Miss Sudie. Y'all know Miss Sudie? Miss Sudie is about this big and as tough as nails. And no matter how many times I've gone to see her in the hospital, she won't let me, she won't let me ask her how she's doing. I'm fine. How are you doing? He wants to ask about me. Sudi, stop asking about me. I'm fine. There'll be times she's sick and she won't tell anybody or she's hurt and she won't tell anybody because she doesn't want anybody to worry about her. 
That's exactly what Epaphroditus is doing. He is more concerned that they're worried about him than he is to the fact that he's about to die. Paul is more concerned that the Philippians get comfort by the fact that he's doing okay now. He wants, to send, he wants to send the guy who is there for the only purpose to care for him. He wants to send him away and send Timothy away. He'll be by himself. He wants, he's willing to send them away for the feelings of the Philippians so they're not worried. As the family of God, we've got to be people who have genuine concern for other people like that. Third, verse 22. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. Some of my favorite memories growing up are where my dad would take me and teach me something. We'd do something together where uh, we'd, he'd teach me how to change the oil or change the tires on a car or fix a car or taught me how to go hunting and how to climb a, how to climb a deer stand, how to shoot, how to, uh, we, we, my mom got into koi ponds for a while and, you know, started out like this big and eventually ended up the size of our house. And so every time she wanted to make it bigger, you know, we'd get in there and dig and we'd work, pro- the reason I love projects today is because me and my dad always did projects together. And so we would do it and it's amazing, this amazing thing when you kind of think and you kind of visualize what you want to accomplish and then you do it, you stand back and go, wow, we did this thing, that's awesome. I think that's kind of sort of how Paul felt about Timothy. Like he's with Timothy, they're traveling the world. They're planting churches. They're getting arrested. They're getting beat up. They're getting chased out of town. They're sharing the gospel. They've been laboring together. And now Paul says, this guy's like a son to me. And notice that Paul says he has proven his worth. Timothy was younger. He was a young guy who had taken on a lot of leadership. And so it was easy to discount, discount him because of his age. But Paul was reminding them, hey, listen, Timothy's my right-hand man. He's like my son. He is faithful. I trust no one more than this guy. He's gushing on him. See, I think we should strive to be like Timothy, when, where when people see us serving, they see our worth to the body. When they see us serving, they think they see how much, how worth we are to this church. Let me frame it this way. If you were to move out of the area, or you, know, you got a job and you had to move and you left here, how big of a hole would your absence create? Would your absence be felt? Where are you serving? How are you serving? Some service is really public and out front. Other service is behind the scenes and no less important. I'm learning all the time about people. I learned this week about somebody who was doing something that I had never known. They've been doing it for years. I had, n- had no idea they were doing that. They just on their own, come take care of this thing and, and leave. Don't want any credit, just do it. And I'm thankful for a church that has such ownership that people step up and fill in like that. But ask yourself that question, where are you serving? What kind of hole would your absence create? Would it be felt? We see this example in the text in verse 25. He says, I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. Epaphroditus left Philippi, came to Rome to care for Paul, and now Paul is willing to send him home. Epaphroditus is just willing to go wherever he's needed. Hey, if I'm needed in Rome to care for Paul, that's where I'll go. If I'm needed back home, I'll go there. Wherever the Lord wants to use me, I'll go that place. We have a lot of people like that. We have a lot of people in our church who are saying, hey, whatever needs done, I'll be there, I'll show up, I'll get it done, I'll do it. Thankful for a church like that. I think about people like the Hamblins, like Bob and Elaine. 
that they are the first ones on the scene anytime there is something that needs to be done. They're there ready to take care of it. We have a slew of people like that. We have people who are 70, 80, and some who are 90 years old, over 90 years old, who show up weekly to clean this building. That's awesome. Like, can we just say thank you to that? We have people who faithfully serve in preschool and kids' ministry, change diapers. We have people who invest in our youth and are teaching small groups. We have people who faithfully, week in and week out, serve wherever it's needed. Like the stuff that gets in the back of the chairs doesn't just appear there. Someone puts it there. They don't look for recognition. They're not looking for credit. Faithfully serve. May we grow all the more and more like that. May we be the people who care so deeply about God's people, about the spread of the gospel, that we serve. Third mark of, a fam- of the family of God is faithful serving. And the fourth mark, surprising unity. So you've got celebrating the Lord's work wherever, wherever we see it, genuine concern, faithful serving, and surprising unity. There are three guys in this section. Three guys who are knitted together in love, create this deep affection and care for one. When you read this passage, you can just feel how much they love one another. They're connected deeper than any biological family could be. They're united by the gospel. But I want you to notice who these three guys are. Paul is a Jew of Jews. He was a Pharisee. He, was, he thought he was righteous. He did everything right. He was God's man. And yet he went around for, quote unquote, God, uh, persecuting and killing Christians. Right? He was a terrorist. That's Paul. Second, you've got Timothy. Timothy is a half-breed. He is a half-Jew, half-Greek, experienced persecution his whole life because of that, was not accepted by either group because of that, and uh, that's Timothy, and he's young. Nobody wants to trust him. Then you got Epaphroditus. Now, Epaphroditus, the Greek, and Epaphroditus is the masculine version of the feminine goddess Aphrodite, who is the Greek goddess of love and all things sexually immoral that we cannot get into without going to our rating. That's who Epaphroditus is. And so you have these three guys, all radically different, united. Paul says of Timothy that he's like his son. And he says of Epaphroditus that he's his brother. You see, the world will always be divided. Seems more divided now than ever, but it's always going to be that way. It's never going to change. We're going to divide over skin color. We're going to divide over social economic status. We're going to divide over politics. And we're going to divide over football. We can divide over everything. We can't. There's no end to the list of things we'll, we'll divide over. But everyone who comes to Christ will find themselves united in a new family across every worldly dividing line. No matter your skin color, no matter your politics, no matter how much money you have, we find new brothers and sisters forged together through the gospel. And the world can't make sense of it. The world looks at the church when, we're, when we actually have diversity and we're unified. They're like, that doesn't make sense. They don't get it. Amen. I'll take that as an amen. An important marker of the family of God is that we all look, think, and act differently because our unity does not come from any of these lower things. It comes from something that is transcendent 
of all of these things that divide us. It's the gospel. See, church, we have to strive to grow more and more in this area. You see, it's not that we've done anything wrong necessarily. Rather, it is our job to fight to be more diverse and more unified, to accurately reflect heaven and be unified even though we're different. One of the saddest things in the world to me and should be to you, one of the most anti-gospel things in the world today is that on Sunday morning, from 11 to 12 in the morning is the most segregated hour of the week in the world. There should be no such thing as a white church. There should be no such thing as a black church. There should be no such thing as a Russian church or Hispanic church or Chinese church. Those should not exist. We should just have the church. And what you find is people who are red, yellow, black, and white, rich and poor, Bengals fans, and heaven forbid, Patriot fans. That's what the church is. We should be united. A surprising unity, a unity that the world doesn't make sense of, because when, when we get Jesus, all of a sudden you become my brother. You become my sister. It doesn't matter the color of your skin. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter what sports team you cheer for. It doesn't matter what your politics are. Because at the end of the day, can I tell you what? All of our politics are the same. Jesus for king. Jesus for king. The family of God must be marked by diverse unity. Finally, verse 29, Paul has finished gushing about these two guys they love so much and caring for them. He talked about their service and kindness and selflessness. And in verse 29, he says, honor such men. Honor such men. The reason that I shared some people's names this morning because of this verse is that we should honor such people, honor people who serve faith, honor people who stand out as examples of, of what it means to be the part of the family of God. Sometimes I get scared to do that. There are plenty of times that I want to point out an individual for doing something. I want to celebrate them and be thankful for them and honor them. And I don't because I'm scared because when I do that, I've left a bunch of other people out. And when you leave somebody out, they get upset, right? And I'm going to have left people out this morning, but the Bible tells us to honor these people, and we got to do that. Because there are so many of you in this church that work hard for the Lord. That you, so many of you that are, are wonderful examples of what it means to be a faithful follower of Jesus, to, to be a part of the family of God. And I'm not going to be able to mention you all. We should honor such people who stand apart as examples of faithful service. Men like our deacons who faithfully serve uh, behind the scenes, who faithfully serve our widows. Women like those in our senior ladies class who clean and decorate for Christmas and work in the kitchen and all sorts of things. Those Sunday school teachers who spend hours studying and preparing to faithfully exposit and teach the word of God. Diane Penix, who faithfully leads our preschool and organizes all of that. Kelly Cunningham, who leads our children's ministry. Jody Meese, who pours out her heart for women's ministry. Our staff who pour themselves out in all kinds of ways. John and Stacy Horn who faithfully lead and help clean this building. Everyone who's pitched in this year to mow our grass so we don't have to pay a ridiculous amount of money to mow. 
Jenna, who, who mowed more than any person in human existence this year. The Kecks, who, who the flags get up because Doug comes out and do it. Things get set up because the Kecks show up here way before the Holy Spirit's even awake to do things. I'm waking up, and Doug's like, I've already had my second quiet time and put the flags out, got the cameras out and everything else. Bruce Cunningham, who's always fixing technology or making me do new tech stuff. Scott Meadows, who are uncomplainingly up there running stuff every week and everyone in the tech booth. Dan and Bill Jenkins, who take care of this building. When something's broke, they come fix it. Danny Constable. always I call him all the time. Dan, I need your help to do this. And he comes up here, helps me put a sign in, dig holes. I could go on and on and on. And I've missed many of you. But we should honor such people. So here's my challenge to you today. Go to someone today that you see in our church who is a model of what it means to faithfully serve and be a part of the family of God and tell them that you see them and you're thankful for them. Tell them that you see their work, you're grateful for them, and you want to celebrate what the Lord is doing through them. Tell them thank you. Do that. Do that. God used these men, Paul, Timothy, Epaphroditus, as an example for us on what it means to live out the Christian life and be a part of the family of God. But now, God is wanting you to be a model as well. God wants you to be someone worthy of imitation. God wants you to be worthy of imitation. So ask yourself this. If a new follower of Jesus, if a new believer who didn't know how to follow Jesus looked at you and said, well, I'm gonna follow them as they follow Christ. Would that be a good thing? Would it be good? Would it be worthy? Would it be great? If they followed you as you followed Christ, would that be where they'd wanna go? You be the model that someone else can look at and follow Jesus. Be the model. What should our church family look like? They look like these three men who strive uh, And we should strive to make it look like that here at Fellowship. Like these people I've pointed out and many other ones. Sean Belmont on Operation Christmas Child every year for, I don't know, I don't want to say, I don't make her sound too old. For a long time, Sean, long time. For people who have led VBS. I'm just thinking of all these people I haven't mentioned. There's so many of you. Wonderful examples of what it looks like to be part of the family of God. So let's be the model as individuals and as the church to celebrate God's work wherever we see it, to genuinely care for other people, to serve faithfully, and to have surprising unity so that we can all together be the model of what the family of God should be so that other churches look at us and say, how can we be more like them? And so that other people look at you and say, how can I be more like them so that I can be more faithful in following Jesus and part of the family of God? Let's pray. Father, we're thankful. Thankful for how kind you are to us, that you've made us a new family. Lord, let us shine our light like the stars in the sky, like we talked about last week, to be the family of God, to be the people of God, to be models for what that looks like. Help us to not get bogged down in the fights of the world, but to transcend those as the family of God and to advance a kingdom, a kingdom that will not shake and will not crumble. A kingdom who has a king who is worthy and that darkness will not have the final word. Lord, help us be those kinds of people. Be the family of God who celebrates, who cares, who serves, and who's united. Thank you, Father. In Christ's name we pray all those people said, amen. Church, it's been great to be with you.
Um, I'll be up hanging out here if you need me. I love you guys. Peace be with you.